talking of I'm working here. I'm here. Okay. All right. Good. Well, let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are so blessed as your people to have been conformed unto the image of your Son, though we await still that full conformity. Father, that you have given us the sonship of the end of the ages, that we, the Gentiles, may participate in the fullness of that heavenly inheritance that is above in your Son, and that you have made him our delight, our reward, is above all things most glorious. And Father, we now pray that you would help us to understand the text of Galatians as we see the Apostle Paul striving in the church to defend that gospel and to advance that gospel to the Gentiles, that we may participate in the fullness of the freedom of the sons of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, I figured I would give you a very brief review and brief summary of what we did last week, especially if you got lost in all the details. Um, We were talking about Paul on the road to Damascus, and this sets up what we're going to look at today in chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. Paul on the road to Damascus, and I was suggesting that in his call... Paul is conformed to the Son of God, okay, and that he's conformed to the Son in a special way. When you look at sonship in Galatians, it reminds you of sonship of Jew and Gentile alike, okay? So this is a sonship that's not simply relegated to Jews, And remember, Paul had been a Pharisee before where he thought the sonship of God was to the Jews alone. Now he participates in a new sonship, a sonship of the fullness of the time, where now Gentiles can be sons. And that's why he says, God essentially called me, revealed his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, there's a connection between him being called by the Son, the special union that he receives with the Son in that call, and his own calling to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. So he has to be called as a son, a sonship that would be in accordance with Jew and Gentile alike. And the amazing thing is this is a greater sonship than Israel participated of old, okay? That is, certainly Israel by grace, those children of Israel, the elect in Israel, were sons of God through faith in Christ to come, by grace, through faith. And yet, we receive a greater fullness of that same sonship now. We don't look through types and shadows in the land. We don't see the types and shadows of our inheritance in the land as a means of participating in our sonship above. We have gone beyond that. So now we place our full hope and faith in that inheritance that has come above in the fullness of the times. So we have a greater participation in the sonship of God now that it is equally for Jew and Gentile alike. 
And that's what Paul was invited into. That's what he was made a participant of. And that's why you see the drama that I was trying to suggest to you last week. The drama that goes from Paul as the Pharisee to the transformation that takes place at the end in verse 24, where now even the Jewish church, you see, praises God for the work of God done in me. You see, he had the Son in him, revealed in him. Now the Son is revealed through him even to the Jewish church in Judea. I mean, a Jewish church, do you think a Jewish church is essentially at first going to be praising God about works done among Gentiles who are uncircumcised? No. So the fact that they are praising God for this evangelistic message going out to the uncircumcised Gentiles, the fact that they're doing that praising shows that they've caught the vision to some extent. They have seen the transcendent Son of God revealed in Paul. And so they see Christ revealed in Paul, and they praise God as a result. Now, I know that, you know, as you're looking at that, I've, uh, I'm suggesting something where we are called to identify with the Apostle Paul in his transformation. That is, the Gentile, uh, what Paul, why is Paul giving this to the Galatians? Why do you think he's giving this to the Galatians in the introduction of this letter? Is it not because he wants to draw the Galatians in union with his call? You see, that's what we saw in 1.6, that they were called by grace and they're turning away from it. Now he's called by grace in 1.16. So he's trying to draw the Galatians into union with his own call. He wants them to see what the Judean church saw, right? Remember, the Judean church praised God for the work of evangelism among the Gentiles who were not circumcised. What are the Gentiles, what are those Galatians doing now? Are they as full of faith as the Judean churches were? No. They are turning aside from that, you see. They are saying, no, in order to have the fullness of the gospel, we may have to be compelled to be circumcised. We may have to be circumcised, right? And we might have to require that of other Christians to be circumcised. So they're not even seeing what the Judean churches saw. So what Paul is trying to do is draw them into union with his story. Now, I know that some of us, when we came to think about Galatians, weren't even thinking about the stories at the beginning. We were ready to get the doctrinal statements and the propositional statements that we would then have to reason out. Okay, And narrative, and thinking about narrative seems perhaps a little foreign to us. So I'm going to I'm going to go a little I'm going to give you a little preview of 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 what uh, some people have seen in narrative and how that connects to our identifying with the narrative. In other words, how does narrative make an argument? Okay, and then not simply an argument, but then draw us into it. Okay. Now I'm going to because you know 
you're all familiar with films, and I used the example last time of The Wizard of Oz only because I think it's a film that most of us saw, have seen, right? Uh, so I'm going to do that again, but in a little bit more detail. And screenwriters think of films as being separated into three acts. Okay, this, isn't, this is, doesn't mean the curtain drops at the end of Act 1 and then the end of Act 2, uh, but you kind of divide it into three acts. So we got Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And I'll, I'll tell you a few things about film timing in this, just so you can relate it to films you've seen. Usually this is considered to be about 30 minutes at the beginning. This is usually around 30 minutes or more to 40, perhaps, at the end, okay? Uh, and then the rest of the film is usually in Act 2. Well, what you have here is a three-act structure. And even Shakespeare's plays, which may be five acts, are sometimes analyzed in terms of this three-act structure, a, a certain pattern here. And I, I tried to suggest to you a way you can see where a film divides act one from two and then two from three. Where do these divisions take place? Well, they take place at dramatic turning points. Okay, dramatic turning points. And the first dramatic turning point takes place somewhere usually toward the end of Act One, but sometimes a little earlier. And I'm going to call this the instigating event. It's called other things like inciting incident and everything else. But instigating event or the call of the main character. Some people call it the call to adventure. All right? The call of the main character. What happens here is you normally have your character in their own ordinary world, okay? And then they're called into the world of the story. So, in Wizard of Oz, we have Dorothy in her own ordinary world, right? In Kansas. If you saw Back to the Future, I'm thinking, trying to think of other films that maybe a lot of people have seen. Back to the Future, it had Michael J. Fox back in his own ordinary world back in the 80s before he's called uh, to adventure. All right. So, Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is in her own ordinary world. Then she is called by the instigating event. And uh, someone think they know what that instigating event is? Somebody, somebody that maybe can't remember what was said last week, but even if you do, go ahead. I'm, here, I'm, I'm seeing lips move. Is your, ben, does your wife have an answer to this? The tornado, you're right, it's the tornado. Okay, so the tornado is Dorothy's call, all right? Uh, the tornado. And what happens is she's whirled out of into the world of the story, and then she gets into Act 2, all right? I'm going to tell you a few things about Act 2, but first, we want to see what divides Act 2 from Act 3. Well, usually at this point, at the end of Act 2, unless it's a tragedy, the main character is at their lowest point. Okay? And I'm going to need another pen because I think this one's running out, so I don't know if anybody get one for me. We're at our lowest point there. We'll see if it'll last for a while. We're at our lowest point. Main character is at their lowest point. And then something happens where they at least get their final power over the antagonist, so that from now on, once, they, once there's, a re, there's a reversal that takes place here, and I'm going to call that a dramatic turnaround, 
Okay, dramatic turnaround. And what happens is the main character gets the upper hand over their enemy. Uh, Jim. Oh, Pete, it's got some. Thanks. You're prepared. Thank you, Pete. Uh, they get the upper hand over their enemy, and uh, then usually they have power to, to everything's downhill from here. Okay, so this is rising action up here, and then we got falling action at the end of the dramatic turnaround. Falling action, where now they have control over the enemy, and they're, you know, from everything from now, it's, it's, it's they have the upper hand, and, and they come to the end, to the climax, when there's the final confrontation with the enemy, like in Hamlet, where Hamlet uh, is, is doing a sword fight, right? Uh, so somebody think they know what the dramatic turnaround is in The Wizard of Oz. That's a good thought, but not quite. And, and, the, and the weird thing about this is, if anybody's ever killed here, then they're not the ultimate enemy, okay? They're just one representation of evil, which then the character has to fully overcome. So maybe that gives you some ideas about this one. Does anyone special die at a certain point by the hand of Dorothy? Yes. The witch dies, and how does she die? What? She melts. She melts, right? Because Dorothy throws water on her, and then she's melting, right? Okay. So, and from then on, Dorothy has the upper hand to get back to the wizard, and finally says, "There's no place." like home. All right? Now, so this is the water on the witch. Now, this tells us a little bit about the development of the drama, but I want to show you one more thing that is central to understanding dramatic development. And that is, in Act 2, which is our largest act in a film, we have what are sometimes called stages of opposition, maybe four or five, okay? Stages of opposition. And what happens here is, uh, before I tell you about stages of opposition, first I've got to tell you, well, beginning with this, with the stages of opposition, to begin it, you've got the call. The main character has a call to adventure, all right? And with that call, they have a desire, We'll call this a desire line, a desire that they want to pursue. Okay, um, let me get a better pen here. They have a desire that they want to pursue. And, of course, in Dorothy's case, it's what? To get to the wizard to what? Get back home. To get back home. Okay, so her desire is ultimately to get back home, and she's going to go see the wizard around the midpoint pivotal scene here to, to see if he can help her. But she's got a desire to go back home. But that's not everything about Dorothy's character, her desire to go back home. She also has a need, and we'll call this a need line. She has a need. She has a need to learn something in the process of this story. And 
That is a lot about what the story is about. This is character development, what she needs to learn and how she develops. That's very central to the main idea of the story, Okay, how she comes to understand her need. We might call that the central idea of the story. Now, how does she come to understand her need? And I'm going to tell you right now that her need is ultimately to realize what she says at the climax. There's no place like home. Okay. Now, she desired to go home here, didn't she? So you're saying, well, what's the difference? How would she learn here? I mean, it's a little kid's story. It's really simple. She learned that there's no place like home. I mean, she wanted to go home here, but she didn't know there was no place like home. Okay. (laughs) That she had to learn through the process of the story. And how did she learn that? She learned that by realizing that wonderful place over the rainbow wasn't such a wonderful place after all. It had all kinds of conflicts that she was going to have to go through. All right? And so, in the first stage of this opposition, she tries to follow the yellow brick road and go on to pursue her desire, of course, thinking it's going to probably be pretty easy. Uh, Then she comes up against some roadblocks. And, of course, we have stuff like the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and, and other things like that are roadblocks for her. But what happens is you get each of these stages is like a little story in itself. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. And what happens is Dorothy comes into conflict in the middle of this stage with a character. And she's got to figure out how to overcome that conflict. And she overcomes it by getting an insight Now, some people call this revelation. We'll we'll put it as an insight here that the character gets. All right? Main character gets an insight when they've overcome some conflict. Well, then she thinks everything's, she's learned what she needs to learn, and she's going to go on, and now she's going to go to the wizard, and that's going to be it. Well, no, she comes into conflict with something else, okay? And uh, then we have her having to learn something new from that conflict. Well, in the second conflict, she's grown up a little bit because she already has an insight that she can use for that second conflict, right, to overcome it. But that second conflict, that insight isn't quite good enough. She needs to get a little bit more insight, okay, to to overcome this second difficulty. So we got another insight, too, all right? And this pattern repeats itself. She gets another, after she sees the wizard, she comes in another, you know, conflict, and she gets a greater insight. So you got another insight and another insight until when she's at her lowest point, you see, when she looks like she's at her lowest point, she uses all the insights that she's had before, and she puts them all together and mixes them together and even produces a greater insight, and that helps her to the, gain the dramatic turnaround, okay, where she gets her big insight here in big letters. And that's what leads her then. It's, it's that insight basically filling itself out in her life through the, S, end of, you know, the rest of Act 3, where she comes to the final insight in the climax. You see, that's how the plot works together with character development. And, you know, when movie makers do this, they know they're doing this kind of thing. 
Okay. So you may you may be had without knowing it. All right. Um, they know they're doing this kind of thing, and what they sometimes call this is this. See this development of character where this insight, great insight, comes here. Well, here's a philosophy of life or something like that that the that the main movie maker wants you to gain insight into for yourself. You see. They want you to identify with the struggles of the character, all those things the character's going through, and then say, she got through that one, and boy, she got through that one this way. You know, I knew that internally. I don't think about it logically all the time, but I know that internally. She got through it by doing this, and then then that, and then that, and then wow, and then this, you see? And then that's the way I should think. That's the way I should live my life, too. I should be like Dorothy, maybe if you're a little kid, okay? Um, So this is the core idea. The core idea. Now you see, is this a is this a is this a logical syllogism where the writer you know the the, the, the film director says well we're going to start with a little film and it's going to say uh, you know uh, people uh, people like places that are not their home uh, but uh, they find out that those places aren't anywhere good as home and then therefore there's no place like home. Okay, is that what the movie writer does? How many of you would go see that movie? Well, you would. Okay, Mary Lou. Well, <laughs> you're, you're, you're different. But, but that's good. Maybe, maybe you have some good insight there. So, but not most of us, okay? So what, what it is is we, we don't just want a little syllogism written on a screen for us, okay? Right? And that's probably not what you were into, okay? But, but you, don't, you don't want just a little syllogism written on the screen for us. We want a dramatic film that we can identify with, right? Because that's how the movie maker is trying to convince you of a conclusion. That's their conclusion right there. They're trying to convince you of a conclusion by drawing you into the drama. And what's better, you see, they know they're not just going to logically convince you that that's a good idea. They're going to make you experience it so that you actually feel it. So that you genuinely internalize it, you see. And that's the way, I mean, this is a more sophisticated way maybe of analyzing stories, but people have analyzed stories like this back to Aristotle, okay? And writers of stories in the ancient world also knew what they were doing. And I'm going to suggest to you that Paul knows what he's doing when he writes this story, you see. He wants to do the same thing. He has a main argument that he is arguing, okay? And he is doing it by story. And he's showing it primarily about how the Son was revealed in him and how that revelation came to be displayed more and more. Okay? Whether it's the Apostle gaining new insights, okay? Or it's us gaining new insights into the Apostle and what he's made of by the drama, okay? And so we get a new insight and revelation of who the Son is, the Son who is in him. And in this case, in this drama, we gain a revelation of that transcendent kingdom of God that transcends earthly Jerusalem, where our sonship is above in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
who is the true Son of God, the heir of God eternal. And we're in union with him. And we see that and feel it displayed in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, briefly, just one more thing. Some of you may wonder whether, uh, you know, to do this, I focused on the way Paul uses the language of in me, in his call, okay, to reveal his son in me in 116. And I know, especially if anybody knows Greek, this en emoi, all right, or en humin, amin, depending on the context, this, this can actually be a reference to something else. It can be revealed as son to me, revealed as son through me. It can have lots of different nuances. Okay? And by suggesting that, that it has the nuance of revealed as son in me, I'm not denying that it has certain other nuances too. Like he's revealing his son through me, perhaps. Or maybe revealing his son to me. But what I'm trying to say is it includes the nuance of in me, okay? It includes the nuance of what we think of as revealed his son in me. And I think, for instance, you can look at 124, and you can see that there's just an example, because 116 and 134 were similar in in me, and it's 124 is they were glorifying God. It could be because of me, as the NASB has, but it's it's... It can be in me. They've been glorifying God in me. But it's certainly not the idea of glorifying God to me. Okay? So we can't restrict it to to me. And I think that some interpreters restrict the language of in me in verse 16 to to me. He revealed his son to me. Okay? And I'm going to say, by comparison, you can't restrict 124 to to me. So you can't restrict, I don't think, 116 to 2 me. Then you have another comparison in Galatians. Galatians 2.8. Where Paul says, For he who was effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectively worked, it could be for me, but it can be in me also to the Gentiles. Okay. And I think that it's very reasonable to take it as in me. Now, it isn't, again, uh, I mean, it could be to me, but that is a little unusual, again. But I think that in me is a consistent usage here. He worked in Peter for a gospel to the, to, the, to the circumcised, and in me for the gospel to the uncircumcised. But... Then there's one other text, Galatians 2.9, and this is the grace given to me. And here, what I'm, all I'm showing here is the to me can be a possibility. Okay, it can't, It's not just in me, but to me, because the grace given to me in 2.9 right, refers back to his calling. So it is also God revealed his son to me. I think that's legitimate. Here it's the grace given to me. Okay. I think the greatest, perhaps the strongest in me statement 
occurs at the end of this whole narrative. And that's in 2.19, where Paul is actually giving a speech that then culminates the fullness of this narrative. All right. Um, it's actually 2.20, I'm sorry. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the Son who lives in me. Okay. So, I would just suggest that it's, it's, it's very probable, okay, to take his language of his call also as in me. And to have to see that how he then expresses that through this story culminating in this speech. Okay, whether it's given uh, at Antioch or given to the Church of Galatia. So now, as we look at chapter 2, I want to suggest to you that all of this is in the background. The dramatic identification with the Apostle Paul and him then carrying on that story. Okay? We're carrying on that story. We've only seen part of the story so far in his call and the response of the Judean church to his, to his mission. Now we're seeing another part of the story. The story where he does finally go to Jerusalem in chapter 2 for a little bit longer stay or at least a more important visit. Say. Any any questions or comments about that before we move on? Yes, Ben. Oh, you're talking about my suggestion on story here? Um, well, what I'm suggesting to you is uh, not the whole book necessarily. Perhaps the story part has elements of this. Now, I don't want to just take this as a grid and impose it on the text, okay? I want to say, okay, here's, here's the basic dramatic features that people have recognized in drama as a whole. Um, and and we, if we know about that, then if we happen to see those elements in the story, then, then we can connect with them, okay? Um, this could occur more than once. Exactly. It sure could. So you could hypothetically, in fact... You see, every, a lot of times, one little stage of opposition is one little story. So sometimes it has all these elements focused into a little stage. Okay? Or one, one act, also, is kind of like one little whole story put together. has its own beginning, middle, and end to some extent. Um, not, you know, maybe precisely. You know, the fall, rising action and falling action is very clear in the whole pattern of the story. But at least certain elements of the story are found in each little vignette. So um, here I suggested to you that there were different stages of this story, okay, different stages of this story, and we saw some of the key words that led us to see those stages in, uh, earlier in chapter 1, and one of those begins in 2.1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Then I went up to Jerusalem. Now, you see, we've seen the Apostle Paul as having identified with Christ as the one. He's not a Jew, you see. He's not putting his sonship in Judaism. 
Therefore, he's not going back to Judea, to Jerusalem, like he would have done as a Pharisee, and trying to learn from the teachers in Jerusalem. No. But he does go on these temporary visits to Jerusalem. And what I've decided to do on this little story here is kind of give you what I think is the overall theme of the contrasts that occur in this story. In chapter, at least we're going to look at chapter one, I mean chapter two, verses one to ten first. That's the story where Paul goes to Jerusalem. Okay. And what I'm going to suggest to you is what I think the main central conflict is first. And then we'll look at the details of the story. Well, I think the main central conflict, to some extent, is found in the main theme that I suggested to you before. And that is that Paul's gospel is not according to man. And he does not seek to please men. Okay. See, if he seek to please men, he wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And I think this goes back to his earlier description of his gospel. His earlier description of his gospel, which is that it is a gospel describing the age to come, intruding into this age through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, this age, you see, this age is contrasted to the age to come, but now age to come semi-realized now. The heavenly kingdom has been made ours through the death and resurrection of Christ. We've been united unto Christ in heavenly places. And that's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. See, he, was called, he saw the risen Christ, in fact, in the midst of history. Remember that? Risen Christ in the midst of history, which told him the age to come had intruded into the midst of history. Well, what's then the contrast that Paul is bringing out here between this age and the age to come? I would suggest it's this age is according to man, and this age is, if we can say in small letters according to Christ. Okay, not of men or through men. Now, I want to remind you where I see this theme in the broader story, okay? Where we see this theme in the broader story because we see it right here in 2:6, first of all, in our little story. And Paul says but from those who were of high reputation, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, while those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, that may seem a little unusual to you. You're wondering, where in the world do we see this according to man theme here? And I'm going to suggest we don't find it, even here in the NASB, clearly in translation that we find it in the Greek. It is the face, you see, the face of man. God does not regard the face of man. God does not, uh, there is no difference, you see, 
God does not regard the face of man. So we here have the face of man. And that's how I see it connected to um, what we already saw in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Not according to man. So there's 111 has according to man. And then 2.6 has the face of man. And then our final story is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Somebody remember where that's located? Stephen, where is that located? Antioch. Antioch, okay. And what do we have here in verse 11? For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel preached by me is... Somebody have an NASB that wants to tell me? Gospel preached by me is... Not something that man made up. Good, not something that man made up. Or the NASB has not according to man. The gospel given by me is not according to man. Okay, so now we have in 2.11, not according to man, all right? But, again, what we have here is, in the Greek, we have according to face, okay? Literally, okay? So, according to face. Uh Two, excuse me. No, two eleven is actually in the Greek according to face. This is the face of man. Two six. All right. But uh, okay. But in the Greek in two eleven you have kata prosopon. Okay, according to face. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that, yes, they've translated this correctly in a sense, not according to man if you have the NASB, but it's according to face. And that's what, can, that's what tells us that 2.6 has a similar theme. You see, we've got according to man here in 2.11 connects with man, right? And 2.6's face connects with 2.11's face. Yes? Yes, that is in 111. That is in 111. That's according to Anthropon, okay, which is man. Uh, your your version may not have it. Yes, it's it's a uh, it's according to face. Uh, or yeah, you, you could put it. Let's put it, just put it that way. It could be translated that way. Okay. Um, I posed him against his face, you might say. Okay. But at any rate, uh, even if we have, uh, you want to have some qualms about the preposition here, kata, and how it's used, you have face in both cases. Okay. Opposed him to his face. You see, the face of man God does not regard. 
And guess what? Paul identifies with God. He doesn't regard the face of Peter. And so he speaks against his face. All right. But so what I'm suggesting right now is since we're, we're dealing primarily with 2.6, uh, I want to uh, suggest to you that, in effect, you have this uh, theme uh, that is not according to man. We find it in all these different segments of the narrative. Okay, I mean, 111 introduces the whole narrative, but then we have the story of Jerusalem, and we got the story of Antioch. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you this is a main idea. This is like a core idea in the narrative. Do you have a question, Rain? Okay, thought you had your hand raised. All right, this is like a core idea. I suggested to you something like the core idea in a story. Okay, what what the character gains insights into. All right, and how the character either develops or we see the character's character revealed. Well, this is a core idea. That's my suggestion. And it is connected in chapter 2 with another theme. And that is, see if someone can get it, the end of 6, God shows no partiality, well then, well, what's the rest of 6? What's the end of 6 say? Those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Yes, okay. Those of reputation. Okay, those of reputation. We have uh, this word or cognate of it found here in 2.6, and then look also at 2.9. It says... And recognizing the grace that was given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to Barnabas and I the right hand of fellowship. So men of reputation, those reputed to be pillars. Now you also have this term introducing uh, the narrative. Uh, The end of the second part of Chapter 2, verse 2, second part of that verse. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation. Those who were of reputation. So he's repeating this three times. It's significant enough for him. And especially here in 2.6 and 2.9, we have that appearance. Those of reputation. Excuse me, reputation. Now, How could this be connected to the idea of a gospel according to man versus a gospel according to God? Well, I'm going to show you by thinking about the other idea that comes in here. I'm going to suggest, first of all, that those of reputation, you see, the world seeks for reputation. That's what this age is about. That's what a gospel according to man would be. Seeking the men of reputation. Men of face. We look at them on their face value. People who have reputation in the community. You see? And he's saying, I'm even, you know, I mean, he's not denying that they have reputation in the church, but I think he's saying more than that. You see, he didn't, he didn't regard their reputation 
as being significant. He did not fear the face of man. Why, you know, why do I say that? You might say, oh, that, no, that reputation here is just used ambiguously. It doesn't have any negative connotations at all. Well, look at what occurs in connection with it. Notice what he says. Uh, here, he says, uh, verse um, 6, God shows no partiality. See what he says at the beginning of 6? But those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. See? God shows no partiality. And that's what you have here. There is no partiality. Contrasted, reputation contrasted with no partiality. God, in his heavenly arena, shows no partiality to man because this kingdom is not of men or through men, but through Jesus Christ. And so those of reputation made no difference to me because God shows no partiality. So you see what I'm suggesting is this is connected with the transcendent nature of the kingdom of God. And the New Testament authors do this in other places as well. Take a look at Acts 10.34. This is after Peter goes... Excuse me, this is the beginning of Peter going to Cornelius. This is in the story that relates to Peter going to Cornelius. And Peter says in 34 and 35, someone want to read that for us? And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Okay. God shows no partiality because men in every nation who fear him are accepted. Well, that wasn't that true in the... Uh, what I'm, what I'm going to suggest to you is that Peter... Isn't Peter giving us something new about the new covenant age? He's just learned something new that God gives the Holy Spirit even to the uncircumcised Gentiles. This is something new in the history of redemption. Isn't it? I mean, certainly they were allowed, there were God fears in the Old Testament, you might say. Yes, there were God fears in the Old Testament. But the God fears, Gentile God fears, were not given full rights of entry into the full participation of communion with God. And they. To receive full rights and full participation, they would need to be circumcised. And what you have here with Cornelius is you have a righteous man who's praying to God. So he's a saint in the Old Covenant sense. 
before Peter comes to him. And he prays to God, and God hears his prayer, and God brings him the fullness of the new message of the new age so that he can participate more fully in the life of God through Jesus Christ. And to do that, this uncircumcised Gentile doesn't need to be circumcised. God gives him the Holy Spirit without circumcision, right? And Peter says, I now recognize that God shows no partiality. Well, did God show, I mean, did God show partiality to some degree in the Old Covenant age? To some degree, I'm going to suggest. I mean, certainly you can find texts in the Old Testament where God shows no partiality and judgment amongst his people. You know, the poor and the widow uh, alike are considered righteous in God's judgment. Yet, here is an age where that idea in which he showed no partiality comes to its fullness in Christ. So that there's no partiality between Jew and Gentile. You see, this this statement that Peter is making has to represent something new about the new age. Because he's saying, I realize now that God doesn't show partiality. Because he's given this uncircumcised Gentile the Holy Spirit. So by relative contrast, he had shown some degree of partiality before where there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So this idea of no partiality in its full sense gives its fullness in the new age in Christ Jesus, where there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus, all equally participants in the inheritance above. So, and Paul does uh, something similar uh, in Romans 2.11. You can look at that as well. So, what I'm suggesting to you here is that this, this dramatic conflict that we have as a whole in chapter 2 is this conflict uh, where Paul is coming to Jerusalem and he's posing these false brethren. Okay, These false brethren who want to gospel according to this age. They want to go backward in the history of redemption where there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Right? And they want to circumcise the Gentiles. And Paul implies that that's a gospel according to man, that that's another gospel. That's another gospel. And what he does is he then comes with the age to come. He comes with, he is identified with a Christ who is to come. Remember the Son of God. And the Son is the Son in the full sense now in which we are sons. No distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? We're all sons of God in Christ. So he has entered into that sonship. Paul has. And he's bringing that sonship to the church more and more fully in every encounter he has. And so that sonship is a sonship in which there is no partiality It is according to Christ, not men. And so when he comes in dramatic conflict in in Jerusalem, he is trying to bring about a resolution that will advance that gospel 
in contrast to the Judaizers. Okay. Um, any questions about that at this point? Yes, David. Um, you stated that Apostle uh, uh, Paul and uh, Judaism had a different view of eschatology. Mm-hmm. And that there's the intrusions of the heavenly kingdom into this world and, and um, Jewish eschatology had no uh, way to accommodate that. And I'm trying to figure out if it's a dialect difference that you and I have or what, mm-hmm. but it, it seems to me that on the whole uh, Judaism didn't accommodate or consider conflation of prophecy. And clearly there was uh, the destruction of Babylon. Um, well, uh, and the Lord reads, uh, recites out of Isaiah, he, he cuts off uh, just before the last sentence uh, of quotation. The so, in my dialect, I, I, I would say that, that Israel, Judaism, didn't understand conflation of prophecy, and um, so they were in error, I guess, as to uh, interpretation of events that were prophesied, and uh, is the basis of why they were blinded as to who the Messiah was. I don't know. I'm having a little trouble articulating whether or not uh, I'm missing something very much. Yeah, and I'm not... uh, You may have a few ideas in mind as far as conflation of prophecy, so... um, uh, Let me me stab at something. If you want to press me back on this, uh, you can. Um, Is that... Let's let's just look at this two-age pattern in general. Okay, um, no, keep losing that. Now, what I'm suggesting is, uh, and this this is really following off what Gerhardus Voss has suggested, in a sense, in the prophets, is when the prophets prophesy, they look back to the Jewish. Theocracy, the kingdom of David, and they say that was a failure in some respects. Okay, not that God hadn't given genuine Israel, uh, genuine salvation to Israel by faith, but that the kingdom, as it was advancing, even in the land of Israel, uh, in the promised land, that type and shadow was a failure. Okay. And as a result, the prophets predict a future kingdom which will never be reversed. Okay. The kingdom of David was reversed. It went backward. And it was eventually split up, right? It was split up and then, and then, uh, then captured in exile, both the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. But in the future, God will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. God will bring about 
a new eternal kingdom. That's what we use the term eschatology. Last things. Eschatos is last. And ology is just like biology, right? Study of something. There's a study of last things. Study of final things, you see? Things that will never be reversed. Okay? So here they're prophesying that eschatological kingdom. A kingdom that will never be reversed like the theocratic kingdom of old. And they're doing it in terms of blessing and judgment. And I would suggest that they don't recognize that the blessing and judgment is, first of all, centered upon the Christ. The Christ who receives the final eternal curse that the prophets predict. You see, that has come upon Christ himself. So even that has intruded in the midst of history, in some sense. Christ, didn't he receive eternal judgment on the cross? Eternal condemnation for us? And as God, he was able to bear that load? Right? And satisfy all of it in a moment of time because he was an eternal being? Yes. And he also brought the eternal blessings as well. So we've got the eternal curse or judgment, and we've got the eternal uh, blessings. So we have the eschatological age, if you will, intruded in the midst of history. But we don't have its final culmination yet. We don't have uh, the final uh, catastrophe where this present heavens and earth pass away, okay, eternally. So that, that's the way I'm looking at it. I know, uh, you know, others, dispensationalism especially, looks at it differently, uh, where they're actually looking at these prophecies. See, the prophecies of Israel returning to the land, I'm suggesting, is forever. You look at all those prophecies, they refer to God bringing his people back forever. And I don't think a thousand-year period does justice to that. But dispensationalists want to see that Israel as being the physical Israel according to the flesh exclusively. And they want to see the land of promise, especially being the land in Israel back there where everybody's returning. And so that makes it very difficult for them. And I think that's a form of Jewish eschatology. Okay. Because I think that's what Israel was looking for. That is Israel according to the flesh. That's what Israel according to the flesh was looking for. Now, we can look at this and we can look at those Israelites according to the Spirit, though. What was David looking forward to? What was Abraham looking forward to? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You see? Abraham was looking for this. Right? So... Those who were looking for this eternal, everlasting kingdom by faith, they received it by faith. What do you think about Anna in the temple? Receiving it by faith, right? Okay, so you've got these believing uh, Jews receiving this kingdom by faith. So all the Old Testament in itself looked forward to the heavenly kingdom. And once the heavenly kingdom come, they would say... That's all we need. We got the heavenly eternal land. We've got Christ, that is. We've got that eternal inheritance of God himself. I have Christ my Lord. I don't need anything else. But what happens is when Christ has already come, and then you say, no, I still do need this. I still do need an earthly inheritance. I still do need to become Jewish. 
Because if I become Jewish, I've got an earthly inheritance in this world. I start thinking like the worldling, you see. I've got to hold on to that. And so if you see the Old Testament saints, they would look through those things to Christ to come. Well, if Christ has already come and you still want that, then it shows that really what you wanted is that. You didn't want what it pointed forward to. And that's what these Jews... So by the Judaizers going back to the law, now that Christ has come, now they're making a this-worldly gospel according to man. Okay? That's my claim here. They're reverting to a unbelieving Jewish eschatology. Well, why don't we take a break, and then we'll look more detail at the narrative. Okay. Got some students ready. All right, let's take a look at the narrative now <laughs> in some more detail. So I've given you what I think is the central conflict. Uh, and so let's, let's try to get into the drama of this conflict a bit by looking at some of its details. Uh, first of all, can someone tell me who the characters are of the drama? Who are the characters? Paul, good. That's, that's good. And who else? What? Cephas. Cephas, okay. So we're going to have, uh, let's put him in categories here since now you've jumped to Cephas already. Uh, so we got Paul and Cephas, and I'm going to suggest these people are connected with locations too, uh, at least some of them. Men of reputation. So they would include Cephas. Who else? James and John. Okay, good. Cephas, James, and John. And then we have Paul. Anybody else with him? Is he all alone? Barnabas. Good. And Titus. Good. Barnabas and Titus. Uh, now, do we have anybody else that's outside these two groups? Yes, we have people who are called the false brothers, right? Okay, so we did this because of false brothers who were coming in amongst us. So we've got this other group that are false brothers. And they're going to remain outside the circle. Now, who... Where does this take place? Pretty simple. Jerusalem. And the characters associated with Jerusalem are here, verse 2, 6, 8, and 9, Cephas, James, and John. Right? Who comes to Jerusalem and who leaves Jerusalem is therefore not associated directly with Jerusalem is going to be Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. Those travelers, you see, Missionaries to the Gentiles, at least Paul and Barnabas. Now, um, so we have uh, 
these people who represent the Gentile mission coming to Jerusalem. And what is, remember I talked to you about an instigating event in the drama? And I suggested to you, I mean, this is, this is one stage of the drama, but it can have its own little instigating event, okay? All right? Its own instigating event. And I told you instigating events often come at the beginning, end of uh, Act 1, or the call of the main character. Uh, and then we have a, a turnaround here, dramatic turnaround. Uh, but even in a little short narrative, we can have some of this. So an instigating event is what here? What instigates Paul coming to Jerusalem? Is it not the false brothers? The false brothers is part of it. Verse 4. Because of false brothers. But his first call to this is because of a revelation. Okay. So we have him being called because of a revelation. All right. Just like, therefore, therefore, this is a call from God himself to come. It is not of men. So you see the call is going to fit with the nature of his work here. It's not of men. And he does this because of false brethren. Well, now Paul then goes in verse 2, and he comes to Jerusalem and he does this in private. And he says this odd thing. He says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain... And I'm going to take this as an aside for a moment. This is kind of an aside. Why would he say that? Why would he say that I did this, I might be running in vain? Does he think, does he come here thinking, oh, oh, my gospel just might not be right. And I might have been running in vain all this time with the wrong gospel. And I better find out from these Jeru- you know, Jerusalem apostles so that I make sure I got the right gospel to preach. Is that what he's doing? No. Here... It accords with uh, what is sometimes said elsewhere that, uh, and I didn't pull out the passage for you, but there's one in First Thessalonians where he, he wants to make sure that he hasn't done his work in vain among them, okay? Meaning that he hasn't done all this work without fruit coming from it, okay? So he, he wants to make sure that the Gentile mission uh, will continue, that all this work he's done for the Gentile mission won't be undermined at least to some degree, whether it be by you know the Jerusalem church rejecting his mission and therefore he fails to have they fail to have communion with the Gentile church or uh, some other influence that Jerusalem standing firm in an anti uh, anti Paul position might have. So he, he wants to make sure he does this for the fruitfulness of his mission. Okay. And so his action is that the truth of the gospel might remain for you. Okay? That the truth of the gospel might remain for you. That is his, to some extent, his desire, is that the truth of the gospel might remain for you. Now, I've tried to tell you that this is a drama between a heavenly message and an earthly message, right? Now I've just given you Paul's desire that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. What does he mean by truth of the gospel then? That's probably pretty important. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that 
truth of the gospel for Paul is also a category that represents the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God. The truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel of the new age in Jesus Christ. All right. For instance, take a look at the other usage that Paul has of this term in verse 14 of chapter 2. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said, deceive us in the presence of all. If you being a Jew, live like a Jew and so forth. When I saw that they weren't acting in truth, uh, according to the truth of the gospel, what was this story? This Isn't this Peter? He doesn't want to eat with Gentiles, right? He wants to remove himself from the Gentile table fellowship. He wants the Gentiles to be first circumcised in order to come to the fellowship table. And so what is he doing? He's, I'm going to suggest part of what he's doing is he's reverting to the Old Testament food laws. And he's seeing those food laws as separating him from Gentiles who do not eat according to the Old Testament food laws. That's what Peter does in Antioch. You see, he wants to go back to those Old Testament food laws which made different kinds of foods that, that Jews are supposed to have, you know, what we know is kosher. And when you do that, you can't eat the same food as Gentiles, and in that sense, you can't eat with Gentile table. And so that's what Peter is doing. He's going back to the Old Covenant. And Paul is saying, that is not acting according to the truth of the Gospel. Well, is it according to... In and of itself, was it according to the Old Covenant? Before the coming of Christ? I mean, if you'd separated from a Gentile, would that be according to the Gospel as God revealed it in the Old Covenant? If you were a Jew? Sure. If you were a Jew, you could, you could separate yourself from the Gentiles, right? Because that's what you're called to do. And that would be in accordance with the good news of salvation given to you as a Jew in Christ to come, right? You're looking ahead to Christ to come. And you could do that in good faith, couldn't you? But now that Christ has come and brought the new age, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, you can't go back to that. That's not living in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Yes? This was after Peter's vision, right? This is right, yes. It's after Peter's vision. So he should have known better. Okay, And uh, actually, Paul does critique him for that. Though you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile. You know, now what you're trying to call the Gentiles to Judaize, right? But what I wanted to point out here is this is the, the term that he's using, truth of the gospel, then is about the fullness of the revelation that's come in Christ, the fullness of the new age that's come in Christ, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So when he uses that back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you see, when in our other story here, when he says that he did this that the truth of the gospel might abide with you, you see. He's talking about the truth of the fullness of the end of the ages. He's talking about that semi-eschatological gospel, that gospel where now this age is intruded into the... I mean, the age to come is intruded into this age, you see. The truth of the gospel is the truth of the fullness of the end of the ages. And he's making sure that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, you see. 
so that that truth of a transcendent kingdom of God will remain for the Gentile church. Okay. So this is all about, you see, this is another indication that we're talking about the heavenly kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Because he'd said it's not according to man, right? But according to Christ. And that, that was a way of contrasting the age to come with this age. Now he's talking in terms of the age to come now intruded is the truth of the gospel. And he constantly is contrasting that to, the, to basically the falsehood and the inadequacies of the old covenant order that the Jews are trying to return back to. That is the falsehood of returning back to it now that Christ has come. Okay, Not that it was false at that time. All right. Um, well, let's... In a drama... You've got characters, right? And you've got character responses, and you want, we, want to, we want to see how this heavenly gospel is enacted in the life of Paul and Timothy. And to some extent, he's going to show us that so that we understand how we are to identify with that truth. You see? How the Galatians are to identify with that truth, and thus how we are to identify with that truth. And it says in verse 3, what, what's the response of some of the characters? Well, Titus. How does Titus respond? What about circumcision? Does he feel compelled to be circumcised? No, he does not feel compelled to be circumcised, does he? And Paul says in verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment, or we did not yield in subjection to them. We did not yield in bondage to them for a moment. Ah, do you see what his gospel means when he is existentially identifying with it? When he is existentially identifying with that gospel, he is not living in such a way as to please men and so become in bondage to them when pleasing them comes in conflict with pleasing God. Because pleasing God... It's his life, because God has saved him and brought him to the heavenly abode, and that's more glorious than anything else. And so, when these false brethren try to take in the uh, church and bring them into bondage, you see, by trying to bring them back to the old covenant order, trying to bring them back to that order, and therefore saying that, no, what was found in that order that was partially of this world, that's the real thing. Therefore, this world is what you ought to live like. Okay, That's what the false brethren are doing. And when Titus is confronted with the false brethren, he holds up his liberty in Christ Jesus. You see, this means being liberated. Liberated from this world and freed from the control and domination of men. He will not be compelled. And Paul says he doesn't give in to them for a moment. Think about that. When you are tempted by control, manipulative type people, controllers who try to manipulate your life and try to bring you into bondage to their agenda. 
Sometimes we think, well, we we got to be nice to these people and and, and just and, and just do anything to be nice, you know, because that's Christian love. Uh, well, you can see Paul; he was not devoid of Christian love, but he thought that Christian love, especially most preeminently, had to be for Christ and those in Christ Jesus. He saw things in right proportion, and when it involved rebuking either directly or indirectly, these false brethren in the church, even though they call themselves brethren, he had to do that. Do you think the false brethren were happy? Probably not. And so, sometimes you were called, you see, to remove yourself from the manipulation of even false brethren in the church. For to guard your liberty in Christ Jesus, to guard your union and devotion to your Savior above all things. Yes, David. Well, uh, Peter uh, uh, backpedals. He, he's uh, going through some of the separation that. Uh, historically, the Jews had from the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, Gentile, and he had a message. So they had Old Testament Judaism had some interaction with the Gentiles, uh, but Nehemiah uh, had uh, the returning. Uh, on repreciation of the Jews that were in exile, they return and he makes them put away their foreign wives. I, I'm trying to find out how these, uh, the confluence of these competing Old Testament uh, events and policies plays out. Is that, is that why the Old Covenant was uh, so much less, so diminished compared to the New Covenant? Or? You, you, like you say, you see beginnings of that gospel message going out to the nations, right? Uh, especially in the prophetic period. Okay, But you also have Gentiles before that. I mean, you have Gentiles all the way back to at least Ruth and, you know, uh, uh, Rahab the harlot. You have these Gentiles coming into the faith, right? Um, but then especially by the time you get to the prophetic era, I mean, this is the way I take this, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more you can start pushing and plumbing into this issue, okay? Uh, when you get to the prophetic era and you've got Jonah the prophet, now you have the fact that the Gentiles will come in the future age. That fact that Jonah is prophesying gets intruded into his life. He identifies with the future in his own life. He identifies with Christ, as imperfect as he is, before the time, and he preaches to the nations, and the nations do repent. At least Nineveh, there seems to be some genuine repentance there, right? And some genuine conversion, and you're right. He's not calling them to be circumcised, as far as we can tell. Unless I'm missing something. Am I missing something from that prophecy? No. Okay. Then, then, then. So, so then, there, there. Uh, this is before the time. Okay. But we don't see that 
gospel mission continuing out from there, from Jonah's preaching on into the ends of the earth. We see it as a foretaste of that age to come. Uh, so it's a matter of uh, the progression of God's kingdom. And when I draw this line, we draw a, a dotted line back here in the Old Testament because constantly we're getting an intrusion of the future age in the Old Testament, theocratic situation, in the kingdom, and even after the exile, looking forward to the kingdom that's arriving. Now, obviously with Nehemiah, you have a situation that's in the land with Israel, with Judah, uh, and and so you you probably have something where that theocratic situation is is more in place, and it looks like it is because Ezra um, um, is suggesting that they give away their foreign wives, right? Or that Nehemiah. Nehemiah, thank you. So it's Nehemiah suggesting they get away their foreign wives, and that looks like a different picture than what we have uh, in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, if you have an unbelieving spouse, let them remain. Okay. Uh, I, think, I think Nehemiah did more than suggest. Didn't he have their beards plucked out if they didn't? Yeah, I'm using the word suggest. That's a, that's a bad word. Here, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely necessary, yes. Okay. Um, well, notice Paul, Paul uh, Titus is not compelled to be circumcised. Well, uh, what is Paul is rejecting the fear of men. You see, Paul is rejecting the false brethren, rejecting the fear of men. Instead, living for the fear of God in the kingdom of God. Well, what, what's so bad about being circumcised? And maybe I've kind of already implied this. So, in fact, I think I have. Why, why shouldn't Titus just be compelled to be circumcised? I mean, Paul circumcised Timothy, didn't he? Of course, Timothy had a Jewish mother. And so Paul did that to please the Jews. But here we have Titus, who's probably a full-on Gentile. And the issue is, are they going to be compelled to be circumcised? As if circumcision is a requirement to be saved. If you are going to be saved, you must be circumcised. That's what the false brethren are saying. And once you require circumcision as a means of salvation, okay, or as a means of participating in the full blessings of the covenant, all right, you are absolutizing the old covenant. You have not come to the new age in Christ Jesus. Once you say you have to be circumcised now that Christ has come, it's like saying circumcision is all there is and a bondage to the land of Israel is all there is. And see, that's the connection that I'm suggesting between circumcision and bondage, okay? Is that here in the Old Covenant, circumcision, part of, I mean, certainly to be circumcised is to become a part of the people of God, right? To be saved by grace through faith, looking of Christ to come. But that is also, then, also ties you as a Jew to the land of promise, okay, at least partially, and to your inheritance in the land, okay? Okay. Uh, and when we come to an age in which the inheritance is above in Christ Jesus, we do not have a circumcision right. We do not need to be 
bound to the land of Israel or to any land in this world. If the Judaizers say you have to be circumcised, it's like saying you have to be tied to a land in this world. And now we're demanding it. Circumcision was defunct when Christ came. But if you say it's necessary now, you're making it an end in itself. You're not making its end Jesus Christ. You're making it an end in itself. And you're making the land of this world an end in itself, whether it be Jerusalem or any other land. And so that becomes an end in itself. Making this world an end in itself is bondage. That's what according to man is. Worshipping the world. Not worshipping the true God. Living by your own works. What I can do in this world to get about my own worldly goals and ambitions. You see, according to my works. It's not about grace and what God has done in Christ and what he has brought you and the greater inheritance that he's brought you in Christ Jesus. So this is a crucial thing being brought under subjection to men is a critical issue. You do not want to be in bondage to men. You want to lay hold of that life you have in Christ Jesus. Be content with him, even if men ridicule you, as Titus was, as Paul was. Well, we might ask, looking at that, does this narrative absolutize Jerusalem? Does it make Jerusalem an end in itself? Paul goes to Jerusalem. Does the narrative make it an end in itself? Not according to chapter 4. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the present Jerusalem is in bondage to her children, right? With her children. No, and Paul and Barnabas, they leave, right? And what's the drama leading up to their believing? Well, here we have... Union with Christ that Paul is trying to argue for. And I've already shown you how he goes in conflict with the idea of a gospel according to man by not subjecting himself to those of high reputation. And between those terms of high reputation, he says, it makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism. So Paul is living out of that arena, out of that heavenly arena. He is identifying with a Christ who called him on the road to Damascus. And he is trying to get the apostles in Jerusalem to see that. And what is the result? What is the grand result of Paul's efforts? Beginning in verse 7 and verse 9. Beginning in verse 7 and verse 9. He is trying to bring about character development. What are the results? Paul is trying to bring about transformation, a transformation that I suggested to you in some narratives comes by characters having insights. Are there any words in verses 7 and 9 which show you character insights? Okay, that's good. That, I would suggest, is a result. I'm looking for specific words of insight, but you're on the right track, Pete. Yeah. They saw and recognized. 
Good, very good. Verse 7. Seeing, okay, but seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, verse 7. And verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me. These are character character insights, the characters of the pillar apostles. They have these insights, these insights which turn the narrative. Paul, by God's grace, revealed in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ revealed through Paul, is making this successful. Okay. And so, what is it that they see? First of all, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been, uh, excuse me, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Okay. And verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given me. Recognizing the grace that had been given me. Are they getting an insight, you see, into Paul's calling. You see, remember Paul's calling is a calling made on the road to Damascus, which is by grace. Okay, And I'm suggesting to this, you this, this whole thing is a drama in which Paul is representing in his person the heavenly kingdom of God, the Son of God, coming in conflict with the false brethren, and we're asking, how does it work out dramatically in this text? And when they see and recognize and seeing the grace given to him, are the apostles in Jerusalem seeing that grace first given to him on the road to Damascus? And then seeing the grace that's continually embodied in him as he is in union with the Son of God. You see? Seeing the grace given him. And that grace given him uh, results in the right hand of fellowship. And you see, in between this recognition, you between the seeing in verse 7 and the recognizing in verse 9, you have this idea of God working in him. For he who effectively worked in Peter for in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked in me also to the Gentiles. See, that's what they recognized. They saw the working of God in him. The working that God began on the road to Damascus and was continuing on through his ministry. And then they responded, as Pete said, by giving Barnabas and I the right hand of fellowship. There becomes that union, you see. You've got two groups. Mm, Potentially, there might be some conflict. Paul wants to make sure that he hadn't run in vain, right? But now there's a resolution, a resolution of those two groups by giving him the right hand of fellowship. So they are binding themselves to Paul and how Christ has revealed himself in Paul. Remember how Paul, on the road to Damascus, God revealed his son in him, that he might preach him among the Gentiles? He revealed the son, a sonship, which is to Jew and Gentile alike. That's the grace given to Paul, so that he might extend that grace to the Gentiles, a sonship for the Gentiles. And now they see that grace at work in him. And they see God's work in him for the Gentiles. Are they seeing, therefore, Christ in him, you see? And then responding with a right hand of fellowship. That fellowship in this text is in Christ. Who is brought into that? I had two different groups. On the one side, we had... uh, 
the apostle and Peter, you see who's brought into that fellowship and who's left out. Who's brought in is Paul, presumably Barnabas, and Titus into union with Peter or Cephas, James, and John. And yet, they have the right hand of fellowship. The false brethren remained outside. This fellowship is in the Son of God. You see, that's the resolution to this. The false brethren are left outside. And that's the way it's going to be. You Galatians, if you make a stand for Christ and this heavenly gospel, you will find that those who oppose Christ, they will be left outside. But true saints will be brought in. And you will be reuniting yourself with the union of the church, Jew and Gentile alike in Christ Jesus. And so you, when you come in conflict with those who control and manipulate you, if you must rebuke them either directly or indirectly by your actions and words, those who are true saints will see. They will come, eventually trust God and be in fellowship with you. And yet those who are not in him, they will hate you and they will reject you. But you will have Christ. And you will be in union with his people. And so this fellowship is extended in verse 2. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is probably remembering the poor in Jerusalem to give them gifts. So the Gentiles are going to give gifts, as Paul is going to do, bring his gifts to the Gentiles, uh, to the Jews, excuse me, in Jerusalem, the poor in Jerusalem, and thereby show a union between the Gentile church and the Jewish church by this giving of gifts. Okay, any questions about that? Yes, David. Um, Galatians is typically viewed as being um, against legalism. Uh, My question is, is it uh, Judaizers, that sort of legalism, or how much more extensive is it? If... Seems to me like it cannot be against all laws. It can't be antinomium. Because uh, Paul certainly sets down a requirement for Peter to uh, disengage from being a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that our liberty in Christ gives us license to disobey what the Lord would have us do in any given situation. Good. We're we're not uh, cut loose from law and its requirements. We cannot go back to uh, Jewish uh, laws and rituals. That is in bondage. Right. But but we are we are out there free to do just whatever we please. Yes. You see that this, this, this liberty that we have in Christ is a liberty from the world. It 
involve servanthood to Christ. Okay, so I put liberty up here. Uh, this is not a restriction from all requirements or a restriction from a liberty from being a servant of Christ. This liberty uh, is in the same heavenly category as what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10. If I were to please men, I would no longer be a servant of Christ, right? So here we have a servant of Christ. And as you show, uh, as you said, Paul is representing himself as a servant of Christ, not of Peter, when he rejects Peter's actions in Antioch. And Paul is also showing himself a servant of Christ when he is rejecting the false brethren, and Titus is showing himself a servant of Christ when he refuses to be circumcised. You see, you, you choose one or the other. You're either going to serve men, as Jesus says, or serve God. Right? You're either going to be free from men, or you're going to act as if you're free from God, right? even though you really aren't, ultimately. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think that this is fully in accord with what our Westminster Confession, this church, which uh, uh, Pete is the pastor here, uh, says that, uh, in effect, uh, has a whole section, as all the Reformation uh, creeds, uh, or uh, as all the Reformation tradition does, and many of the Reformation creeds have a uh, repetition of the requirement of the church to obey the law of God, right, the Ten Commandments. And, but now uh, the Ten Commandments in union with Christ, so that we are identifying with Christ Jesus, Okay, that doesn't change their nature. It doesn't mean that you had to you know, stop stealing before, but now you can steal because now it's in union with Christ. I'm not saying that. It's that you've, you don't steal any longer okay? because, you don't, because you're in Christ and you regard the things of this world as bondage. And stealing is bondage to the things of this world that God has not given you. And you have that liberty from the things of this world in obedience to that commandment. And so it is with all the other commandments of God. And the liberty you have on the Lord's day is the liberty to live out of the freedom of that day and to worship God with his people. Freedom from the bondage of this world and your employer saying, no, you have to work on this day even though it's not a necessary job. Okay, So that freedom is consistent with the Ten Commandments. If we were to flesh that out. But with the Ten Commandments, there are also many ceremonial laws and, uh, and judicial laws of the people. Uh, and I'm not denying that they, that they have a referent to being in Christ. I mean, certainly the ceremonial laws look ahead to our giving up our lives, a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. And yet their older form, if I can put it that way, their older uh, form according to the promised land in which we give up animal sacrifices, that is passed away because of what Christ has accomplished. Okay. And so also circumcision, that bloody rite of entry into that land and inheritance is done away. Now, certainly we have baptism now in Christ Jesus, which is a non-bloody rite given to men and women alike and to children. So, uh, and that represents union with Christ above. Okay, it, it, it uh, is a sacrament uh, uh, looking ahead or looking back to inclusion and union with Christ. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about the, the, the form of the theocracy insofar as, and we'd have to get into details, but, but insofar as they represent um, uh, 
somewhat partial attachment to the land, and as, as far as they represent the insufficiency of that era at that time in which Christ had not yet arrived. Okay, so ceremonial law and so forth. Um, well, let's um, let's look a little bit at the at the next section here. We've already said a little bit about it. Um, What happens in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11? We have uh, another situation, okay, that I would argue uh, is a, we have a, another central conflict here, okay? And the central conflict, I told you, I suggested in the last section, the central conflict was a conflict with the gospel according to men, uh, and human preeminence versus Christ. Uh, and here, remember in that section, I then brought us to chapter 2, verse 11, okay, uh, which has this language of uh, not according to man or according to face. Was it right? Perhaps uh, the Greek. And, and so I'm, I'm going to suggest here that that theme is still going on. That main theme where Paul is contrasting a, uh, a return to a life according to men versus that which is by Christ. Okay. A gospel of his kingdom. One in which he seeks to please Christ rather than please men. And where he says, we're talking about a heavenly kingdom that goes beyond even the Jewish theocracy. And so we have this conflict between pleasing men and pleasing God, or according to Christ, implicitly, according to men. And again, I think this is a what I call the semi-eschatological contrast. It's a contrast between the two ages. This age, which is according to man, and the age to come in grace, in Christ. And so we have this conflict between an earthly gospel and a heavenly gospel, once again. But how does it work out in this narrative? Well, it works out... Well, first of all, let's start, let's talk a little bit about the background of this narrative. What 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 is the change? We have a we have to, to see how it works out in this narrative. I'm going to suggest to you part of this is Paul's development as a character. Okay, that's what I'm going to suggest to you as part of what's going on here, and probably we'll pick this up next week, because part of what's going on is you know remember I talked about the development of a story, and we see character development. And that tells us something about what's going on in the story when we have character development or the revealing of a character. Well, Paul has revealed to us something about himself in chapter 1 when he goes out to the Gentile territory. He's not going to go back to Jerusalem. And then he reveals in the story we just saw in Jerusalem that he's not going to put up with false brethren. right? And he's going to bring, a, he's going to bring that heavenly gospel to even the Jerusalem apostles in such a way that they see and understand. He's going to oppose the, the, the Judaizers, the false brethren. But here, who does he have to oppose? Apostle. An apostle, yes. 
Wow, now he has to oppose the apostle to the Jews. This is a progress in the drama. And what's going to happen here? Okay, this is really pleasing men rather than God. Okay. And that's what happens at the beginning. He opposes him to his face because he's in the wrong. In fact, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to the fa- his face because he was in the wrong. And what, what was Peter, how does Paul describe Peter here? The one who was in the wrong. Look at 2.13. He says, and the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Okay, one's a verb, one's not, but nonetheless, it's the same word. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Peter is involved in hypocrisy. Well, I'm going to suggest to you this hypocrisy is because Peter doesn't recognize the trans is not acting in accordance with the transcendent nature of the kingdom of God. That's what hypocrisy is connected to here. Why do I say that? Notice what's said right before that verse, in the end of verse 12. But when they came, he began to withdraw, hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Who is he fearing? God? Then who? Men. Yes. He is living according to men. He is fearing men. He is fearing men, and that's why he's a hypocrite. Pretending to do this for God, perhaps, do the Jewish food laws. But really, he's a hypocrite. He's doing it for men, because he fears men. So again, Paul is going to have to bring that heavenly transcendent gospel, in which there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile to him. Now, I'm going to remind you what we said before. What is Paul, I mean, is, is Peter doing anything here wrong if he was living in the Old Testament period? I mean, if you think I'm wrong, you know, if you think there is, if you, you think he's... Doing something wrong, even according to the Old Testament, you tell me, I might be missing something. No. He's not doing anything wrong according to the Old Testament period. If he lived in the Old Covenant period before Christ came, okay, uh, then he would be in the right. Because God required his people to separate themselves in holiness codes and separate themselves from Jewish uh, patterns of eating and to have their own unique food laws. Okay? And in that sense, separate themselves from uh, Gentile table fellowship. So he's doing something that's okay according to that age. But is he doing something that's okay according to this age? No. He's living, he is not living according to this age in which there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's like he's going back to the old covenant after Christ has come. And so what he's doing is he is absolutizing the earthly element of the Old Covenant. And he's making it an end in itself. 
He is living as if his hope is an earthly one. And what does Paul do? Paul opposes him to his face, right? He takes him, a man who is doing things according to men, who is doing things for the face of men, and Paul opposes him to that face of his. Paul rejects this bondage of men and wants to bring the church to recognize the liberty that's in Christ. And Paul says, notice what he says. He says uh, in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not acting according to the truth of the gospel, when I saw, what does that remind you of in our terms of our uh, drama, elements of drama? When I saw this, yes, it reminds us back to verse 7, right? In verse 7 of chapter 2, they're seeing, right? Seeing, it's either the grace given to me or that God was working in me. Seeing that, you see, that's when the Jewish apostles had a revelation, an insight, right? Now we have Paul having an insight. In this text, in this drama, Paul's the one with the insight, okay? He's seeing and the insight is not so much he's getting a new insight to the gospel, perhaps, but it's, it's that he's seeing Peter opposing it, okay? So he sees that they were not acting straightway according to the truth of the gospel. Truth of the gospel being the truth of the heavenly gospel. They Seeing that, you see, I said to Cephas in the presence of them all, such and such and such and such. So you see, in this narrative, Paul tells us about how he opposes Peter to his face in verse 11, and then he goes on to describe Peter's hypocrisy, and then in 2.14, he repeats, in a sense, his rebuke to Peter. Both these, element, both these verses have Paul's rebuke, okay? And in between there is Peter's hypocrisy and fearing men. And so, in effect, we have him bringing to Peter this transcendent heavenly gospel and rebuking him for living after men. And if you see, you, there's, there's a number of dramatic changes here from the previous chapter. I won't get into yet because we've got to close. But I want you to see the end in what he says. He says, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile. Okay? If you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, live like Gentiles, and not like Jews, how is it that you compel Jews or Gentiles to Judaize or to be like Jews? The verb is Judaize. You have Jew, Gentile, Jews, Gentiles, Jews. You see, Paul is contrasting, in a sense, the situation that Peter is doing, and yet he's using language of Jew-Gentile, Jew-Gentile, to then perhaps make him see that, no, the Gentiles have union with Christ like the Jews. 
together in Christ. You cannot make them Judaize. Okay. And in effect, Paul brings his gospel. Remember the gospel that they had seen in the previous section in Jerusalem? They'd seen that he was an apostle of the Jew- Gentiles and a native of the Jews. He's now bringing that gospel to bear in that drama that's at Antioch, in the life of Peter himself. You see, and this is what he's calling the Galatian church to, to a identify with him in that kind of drama as they must oppose the Judaizers. And so we, you see, are to enter into this narrative ourselves, seeing ourselves responding and identifying with Paul, responding perhaps to his rebuke, responding to this message to find ourselves in union with Christ, the Son of God, who is the Son of Jews and Gentiles alike, embodied in the life of this apostle. This is your life. This is the kind of liberty you have in him that you are inheritors of the age above and your life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Any questions? Yes, Stephen. Who is the one? Who are the ones who are giving uh, Peter, uh, James, and John that reputation? The ones who who's holding them oh. in that repute? Well, you're asking in general, or is it the Galatians? I've I've assumed that uh, those regarded to be pillars would be the those you know regarded by the church, especially there in Jerusalem, to be pillars. Um, so that, that's the way I take it. But I, I haven't heard of any discussions exactly dealing with your question. There, there is a whole discussion on what does it mean for them to be pillars of the church, and many have seen this as, as them being the, found, you know, the, the foundation of the eschatological temple. You know, like in the Old Testament, in the temple you had pillars. So they, to be thought of as the pillars of this, the temple of God now being in the New Age. And, and so... Uh, some disagree with that. I didn't get into that. But uh, that's the only thing that uh, I've heard discussed there. Yeah? I just have a question on the timeline, because I know sometimes they don't follow a timeline exactly. When Paul confronts Peter, is this in Antioch, is this before or after he's in that group that extends the right hand of fellowship to Paul, seeing... Do you understand? Because it's kind of amazing if he's in that group that extends the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, seeing that the gospel was the gospel he's preaching is the true gospel and that he yeah. had been effectual, and then he falls. Right. Yes, you're asking a question. Is it possible that the narrative in 2, 11 through 14 actually it's occurs Christ. before the Jerusalem? And, and some people have actually thought that. Um, I went through a commentary recently. I haven't had a chance to check on Augustine, but someone said that uh, Augustine actually believed that. Um, I don't know that for sure. But but there are a number of commentators who say that. But I think uh, there is a good response to that. I mean, I'd, for instance, even in terms of rhetoric, ancient rhetoric, Quintilian, who's one of the writers on rhetoric, 
says that if you give yourself a narrative, uh, generally you should do it in order. Okay, you could do it out of order to prove a point, but if you do it out of order, you uh, you should tell the court or whoever it is that you're doing it out of order. Okay, um, now, but most rhetoricians actually recommend that you do it in order. So if you're looking at it in terms of rhetoric, the presupposition is that it's in order. Okay. I think if you're looking at it in terms of the drama here, even if you don't know that, I think the presupposition is that it's in order. Okay. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I think that the transition, that, that conflict is represented in the butt. Now, I, I haven't done enough work to, to, to make this solid. Okay. Uh, but I think that you, you get this, um, this con- contrast there that may indicate a, a dramatic switch from a previous position that Peter held, and the fact that he actually, Peter, Paul then rebukes him for having lived like a Gentile previously, uh, also may indicate uh, something that would accord with, with, that, um, with that agreement. But, yeah. Maybe Antioch, Antioch of the city, and it's in the Galatian region. Well, that would be interesting. <laughs> that would be interesting. I didn't hear him. He said maybe Antioch is Antioch of Pisidia, which would put it right in Galatia's backyard. Which I think is a warning. It was a warning to my heart how easy it is for the fear of man to encroach. Yeah. You're dismissed, by the way. Yes, it is true. <laughs> it is true. Well, thank you very much. You have a good evening. Oh, yeah.